Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. Hey friends, today we get to introduce you to the lovely Dr. Claire Foster Gilbert, who is the founding director of the Westminster Abbey Institute in London. She has published many books on ethics, but very recently published her own letters that she wrote to friends and family as she was dealing with her diagnosis and treatment of terminal cancer. Enjoy the episode. Hello. 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 Sorry, forgive my slight lateness. No. I, I have to just explain that I have an electrician here oh. sourcing my light. And he, and I'd forgotten to tell him. And he's just got, gone to his van. So any minute now, he's going to burst into the room and I'll just have to explain that we're having our meeting. So you know what? That's perfectly okay. Uh, because my mother with Alzheimer's lives with us. And... At 11.30, the bus is coming to take her to adult care camp, and the dogs just go nutty when the doorbell rings. So welcome uh, to another podcast of A Different Kind of Walk. Susan and I are thrilled to share with you uh, Claire Gilbert. Uh, And Claire uh, wrote a book, Miles to Go Before I Sleep. But then the subtitle is Letters on Hope, Death, and Learning to Live. So Claire, um, we're just thrilled to have you with us. You're sitting in London and you're here outside of Philadelphia seeing each other face to face and, and talking. And, and um, I told you I had a goofy question at first. It has nothing to do with the book. It does have to do with your life, but I've been worshiping in an Episcopalian church for three years. So I asked the priest, so what exactly does the director of the Westminster Abbey Institute do? <laughs> Um, because, you know, Susan and I have been to Westminster and, you know, I've been inside and um, what I'm gleaning is, you know, we might think of it as a monument, but it's an active parish. Is that correct? Well, it's a complete pleasure to be with you today. Thank you very much indeed for having for having me on your on your podcast. I'm really privileged. Uh, Westminster Abbey Institute was created in 2013 by the Abbey to to be a structure within which the Abbey could relate to the noble institutions of government that are its neighbours. Because in Westminster, there's a square called Parliament Square with Westminster Abbey on the south side. To the east, we have the Houses of Parliament, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Opposite, we have the Treasury and all of the Civil Service Administration. And then to to the uh, west, to the left of the Abbey, we have the Supreme Court. So you have the legislature, the executive, the judiciary, and then this 
big old church on the on the fourth side, uh, which actually got there first. It's been there for a thousand <laughs> years. So these other institutions, although they're quite old, are not as old as the Abbey. And um, the question really was, what can Westminster Abbey bring to the table of public service? How can it support the work of people who around us who are ruling and running the country? And and I. I, I, I talked to people in these institutions and said, is there something that Westminster Abbey can do that isn't being done perfectly well already? Because as you can imagine, there are lots of centres and institutes and think tanks and people telling the government what they should be doing and critiquing right. and campaigning. And, and, um, and actually, even there are good people doing work on the voice of faith in the public square. So really, was there anything left for the Abbey? And the response I got was really remarkable, actually. It was which it was a very strong yes. What the Abbey could do that nobody else could do was to be a place of reflection. And this is for people of all faiths and no faith, but in its, in its Christian service, in its Christian hospitality, it could be a place where people who are trying to do the right thing, most of them, could, could come and, and stop for a while. Mm. and reconnect with the vocation to public, public service and think about the good they think they want to do. And because they're so busy doing it, often you can lose sight of it, lose sight of what it is you're trying to do and just be moving things in and out of your in-tray. And um, it, was like, it was like a brittle sponge, really desperately wanting water, de wanting depth. And um, as I say, this is for people of all faiths and no faith. So this isn't, um, there's no proselytizing. And, and, you know, Anglicans don't proselytize. They're much too embarrassed to proselytize. <laughs> 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 um, um, but, I, but I did love, in the early days of setting it up, I did love something somebody told me about missionary work. He said, missionary work, you don't bring God to a place. You find God in a place. And I feel that that's what our encounters with these politicians and civil servants and, and justices, and, and also we talk to journalists and people in, in medicine and the law, um, ministers of religion, all sorts of different public service, the, the armed forces, the police, to, to rekindle moral and spiritual values in, in them and in their institutions. And we do it with public events but we also have a fellows program with younger public servants where we will work very hard on self-knowledge really and uh, and also private conversations where people so are that would be a group that meets together regularly the fellowship yes yes well we each year we have a, a year-long program and each year we have 15 to 20 of these okay. public servants from these different walks of life and at the end of the year they become fellows so we're just through our in our seventh go of this, so we have about uh -huh. 120 fellows, okay, um, on our uh, who are now our uh, part of this community of goodwill. Right, I'd say. right. Mm -hmm. that's exciting. That's very exciting. So, does the Abbey itself have regular worship hours on on Sunday that a community would come and worship there at the Abbey? I mean, every, every day. Morning prayer at 7.30, Eucharist okay. at 8 o'clock, uh, lunchtime yep. Eucharist at 12.30, even song at 5, every day. Even the day of the royal wedding between William and Kate, 
There was ah. there at seven thirty because the community. It was a monastery. Remember, it was a Benedictine monastery, and the the community. They're Anglicans now, but they still follow the 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 shape of the day. Okay. Yep. So, so they are expected to be there for morning prayer right. at seven thirty. I love that. And all the tourists around is are they kind of secluded from that, or does the worship no. just happen with the tourists? No, no, everybody's invited to all those services and you don't have to pay, I say, to come in to pray. <laughs> you do have to pay if you come in just to visit because we need the money. My goodness, do we need the money to keep the place going. But mm. um, the, the, the lunchtime Eucharist is just held in the nave in the midst of all the visitors and they can either walk past or they can come and sit and join in. And if they want to stay for Evensong, they do. And it's just, I mean, it has been, of course, very, very quiet over the last two years, but I was at Evensong um, yesterday and on Monday, actually. And, and it's lovely to see that more and more people are starting to come for this exquisite music and mm. sense of quiet right in the heart of, this busy part of London where everybody's right. running around trying to run the country. Right. They do talk about it as a place of great solace. Mm, that's lovely. That's great. That's great. So you were baptized in the church of England. I was as a baby. But your yeah. journey is a, a, on a different path before you are back in the church of England. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. I, I, well, I never left, Look, I never left the Church of England, um, but uh, uh, my my parents were involved, rightly or wrongly, with a with a I suppose you would call it a new religious movement, um, which was quite typical um, of its time. So after the Second World War, a lot of people felt that the Church of England was just kind of bumping along as it had always done. That I may say is its is its strength. But when you've gone through a really wrenching experience you're maybe looking for something that feels more meaningful. That's more mm. as more that you might feel spiritual depth or, and, and a lot of people looked East looked towards um, philosophies of the East and these various organizations were set up. And the one I was involved in, or my parents were involved in was one such. And I mean, it really was not without merit, but it was quite culty. There was, it was sort of a way of life. We, we didn't live communally, but we all, we followed a particular diet, quite a healthy diet, actually. It was fresh food, uncooked, apart from bread. But as a child, it's very, very boring, let me tell you. Mm. No cookies? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't very good for women, I'm afraid, because the Indian teacher, whom, whom the leader of our organisation went to get advice from, was, as it turns out, a fundamentalist Hindu. And, you know, women in all fundamentalist forms of religion, women don't get a very good look in. And so, mm. and so it was the case for this. And the other thing I would say is that there was no, you didn't feel love. You felt intelligence uh, and a, a, a kind of spiritual rationality. It's quite platonic but you didn't feel love. And my mother died when I was 12 of cancer and I have siblings as well. So they were children too. And uh, I remember people around us would come and they would help my father, help, help in the house, help look after us. But nobody said to me, it's all right to grieve. Nobody put their arms around me and just held me. Mm. And there was some notion, I, I got the notion as that 12-year-old girl that I, that I shouldn't grieve because we believed in reincarnation. So the thought was my mother had gone to a better life, a different, you know, a different incarnation, different life. 
uh, all the better because of the suffering of her cancer, which I witnessed. And that was quite traumatic for a 12 year old. Right. Um, so uh, I, I would now put these things together, but all I, what at the time, all I can say is what I did was I started looking around. I tr- visited all the different churches in my area. This is a su- north suburb in North London. And there were lots and lots of different sorts of churches. <laughs> and I went into all of them. And um, eventually I was clearly looking. I, di- I, can't, I couldn't have told you then, but I just, I, I was. And I, and I ended up in the, in the parish church, the Anglican church, so the church into which I had been baptised. And I, and I said to my father, I want to be confirmed. And that wasn't particularly in the family tradition, really, although my mother had been confirmed. Um, and I have a memory of her going up to the altar. To, uh, we were sitting in the pew because we went at Christmas. Families went at Christmas. The church went at Christmas, and 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 it was and she and she went up to the altar, and I and I remember looking and thinking, "Where have you gone? I want to go where you've gone." Mm. I just remember that thought, and I can't have been more than six or something. Mm. Anyway, I got myself confirmed, and um, all through my teenage years, I was still in this organisation new religious movement but all through my teenage years I would go to the early morning service on a Sunday at my local church which is just very beautiful book of common prayer lovely poetry and just immerse myself and I and I would say now again with hindsight that 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 was that was an emotional support for me uh, in a way that the new religious movement wasn't in it wasn't Mm -hmm. at all You went for a regular medical appointment and things kind of changed from there. How did, what, what was that situation? It was so lucky. So I, so what happened was that our gym was doing a promotion to, to Westminster Abbey staff. And I went along because they said, they'll do your blood pressure. And they looked at my blood pressure and, and they said, Ooh, that's a bit high. So I thought, hmm, maybe I better check. And they said, you better check it out. So I went to the doctor and we had a, what we call an MOT, all the, all the blood tests, just to check how everything's going. And everything was absolutely fine, except there was a slight anomaly in the kidney test. And he said, it's so slight, it could be the machine. So I said, I don't want to medicalize a slight anomaly. So I don't really want to do anything about that. And he said, well, look, if you change your mind, here's the form. And he filled out a form, gave it to me. So if you change your mind, you can go to the hospital and have a test. There's the form to, to take you. Um, and um, and didn't do anything about it. And then about a year later, I had to change my life insurance provider. And they, of course, want to know about medical history. So my GP, my doctor, rang me up and said, I've just had a call from the life insurance people and they want to look at your notes and they will see that there's a test here that you didn't take up. I think you better just take it up because they'll want to know why. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll go. And and I did, so I did this again. And, um, Again, a slight anomaly. And I still remember this moment in the surgeries. He was standing up and I was sitting down and we had this result, the slight anomaly, which I did not want to be medicalized. And he, and he just went very quiet and he said, I think we better just check, just check this is all right. So he sent me off to the bladder people and that was all right. And then he sent me to the kidney people. And this kidney doctor 
or this kidney department is in Guy's Hospital in London by London Bridge, where there is real expertise in myeloma, this cancer of the blood. And it's, it's not a particularly common, leukemia is the more common blood cancer. And uh, they test for the myeloma protein. Now, normally myeloma isn't diagnosed until after it started to do real damage to your body because it eats into your bones and it destroys your kidney. And people, so people end up breaking a rib or something and they'll go to hospital to the emergency department. And even then it might not be diagnosed because it could mm. be osteoporosis. It could be something else. So they look for the myeloma protein and sure enough, they found it in my blood. So I got this phone call in the pub <laughs> in Hastings, which is on the coast, uh, where I just come down from London on the London train. And I was there with my lovely partner, Sean, and um, got this phone call. And he said, do you know what myeloma is? And I didn't know what myeloma was. It's, ca it's cancer. So then I had to follow it all up. But it was the fact that it it was found and found so early is unbelievably lucky. And then that my, my London flat is just 10 minutes walk from Guy's Hospital, where there's an international expert in myeloma. Wow. I, as Sean keeps saying to me, you're lucky in an unlucky kind of a way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't want to get cancer, right? But if you're going to get it, get it like I got it. Really. Right. <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah. So you didn't know much about myeloma when you heard that word. No. So when did that journey begin to begin to understand what that was? And maybe probably not everybody knows what that is either. So even sharing that with us. Sure. Well, it's a, so it's a, it's a blood cancer. And what happens is that the blood starts to produce these proteins, they're called paraproteins. And also there's, a, there's, a, there's something called light chains. Even now I don't really understand it, but they start to multiply. As this is the way with cancer, you know, it just does more of what your body does anyway, but too much, and then you start to get ill. So it's not a tumor, obviously, it's something that flows around in your blood. And I might say about that, this became very, very important to me because I wasn't going to start using metaphors from the battlefield. I wasn't going to start saying, this is something I'm going to fight and I'm going to defeat. Because one of the things you learn pretty much from the start with myeloma is it's incurable. So I will, if I wanted to have a battle, I wasn't going to win it. But the other thing was that it was in my blood. My blood gives me life. It flows around my body, giving me life. Mm -hmm. And so I would, I would, um, it was like a meditation. I would close my eyes and imagine my blood flowing around my body. And, and I would, and I would ask Jesus to come into my blood and flow as love through my blood and, and love my blood and say to it, you don't need to keep producing these extra proteins. You're doing a brilliant job. It's enough. It's enough. You're wonderful. I love you. I love you. I love you. Like this, rather than I hate you, I'm going to get rid of you. And, and, and you're, you're the wrong thing to be in my life. It was became, that became my real um, prayer and, and um, way of coming at it. it was the thing that I could do. I mean, the doctors gave me horrible treatments, which worked, um, but, but I could do that. So I heard you in one interview and me, you spoke so eloquently about this source of life running through you. Your blood was also the source of the disease intermingled there. Yes. 
that overwhelmed me when you shared that. So now I have a hard question for you, and I'm not expecting you to have the right answer for me. Um, but I, I wake up at like three in the morning in pain, and I can't take a pill until eight or nine, depending on when I took it the night before, um, or a handful of pills actually. So, um, so I would, you know, I've just been kind of working on that. So I do breathing prayers when I wake up and just, uh, they're typically just praise you is the only thing I'm saying in my head as I'm slowly breathing and trying to calm my shoulders. And, um, you know, I have a bed that has an automatic back that goes up and my wife's face goes into the pillow as I do that, but thankfully she's a good sleeper. So, um, <laughs> so I just, I'm, I'm just wondering on that advice because you went through that journey. So I'm thinking about my muscles and my muscles just ache all the time, back, arms, legs, rump. Um, and, tr and I was trying to translate what you spoke to my body and I wasn't, I wasn't quite getting it. Well, first of all, huge, huge love for you and well wishing for you. I think mm, thank you. what you are being asked to endure is a lot. I don't, um, I'm not going to say it's too much because you are enduring it. And because I'm, I'm just reminded of a, of a beautiful saying from Julian of Norwich, who if, if you've read my book, will you will know she was a huge companion, a 14th century woman mystic. Mm. So Julian, this is God speaking to Julian. And of course, she passes through a very, very painful illness herself. And what she says, God says to her is, he did not say I would not be tempested. He did not say I would not be diseased. He said, I will not be overcome. You will not be overcome. And at my absolute lowest ebb, somebody sent that quotation to me. Mm. And it was the best thing because there was somehow an awareness of a strength, a quiet, steady strength that would not be overcome. Um, the other thing I, I think I want to say, and again, this is very much my realization with the cancer myself, was how material Christianity is. The mm. word became flesh. God became flesh and so we are speaking of matters of the spirit but they are embodied and with a body comes many many things much joy delight dancing hugs but also but also pain and and pain in others as well which can somehow sometimes be worse to see the one you love more than anything to be in pain that can be worse than being you yourself in pain and um, I, I feel the pain and Christ is not absent from that pain, in that pain, with that pain, through that pain is Christ. I don't know what that means, but that's my intentional feeling. It is not a bad thing to push away. It's a thing to breathe in, receive, accept, agree to. Mm. And maybe with that comes a rela physical relaxation. 
you know we, i think it's it's a it's a enlightenment mindset it's a you know industrial revolution mindset that we that we push the bad things away from us we we cut them out and and that's not what christianity says i'm not saying we should look for suffering god knows we receive we get enough of it you know we don't have right. to look for it it comes it just comes to all of us but in accepting it in saying yes to it rather than trying to push it away you you go to a deeper place and 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 christ takes you by the hand and takes you to a deeper place right he went there himself very much you're so alone. you're not alone i'm teaching my grandmother to suck eggs here jeff <laughs> uh. <laughs> you know no uh, no and there's the theology and then there's the feeling right so we right can, and and we i'm make... not good at feelings um. So I don't articulate that well. So you using those words with me, that that just spoke to me right there. That's that's a part of the journey. Pain is going to happen, emotional, physical, all different kinds of ways that we experience pain. And I've learned over the years um, that I can either choose to wallow in that or let it change me, let it transform me into something, you know, that God is, um, if God was done with me on earth, I wouldn't be here. So, you know, I'm in bed all day, but I do this podcast and I meet wonderful people like you and people get to hear beautiful stories like yours. So I'm still at 62 and in this condition still transforming, still growing, still changing. So that's the leaning into the pain. Now, let's just be clear here. What we're not saying is don't take painkillers. If there is help, say yes to it. Yes. <laughs> it's not some martyr. Amen. Know, Thank you for saying that. Um, <laughs> totally agree with you. And so does my pharmacy that's about five feet from me. Um <laughs> Uh, but, but of course, your situation is there you are in the middle of the night and you actually can't take the drug. So what then? What then? What then if there, if there is pain and, and you can't alleviate it? But you're I think pushing me towards that place of bringing the feeling in, not just the head. And that was that was yeah. great yeah. because, you know, as I'm doing those breathing prayers, it is about relaxing as much as I can my body. It's about celebrating that I'm loved by God. But the next step is receiving the emotion of that and letting that flow through the body and the muscles also. Yes. That's beautiful. Yes. Um, the, main, the main thing I have to relate to that is just is giving birth. <gasps> oh, what's it called? Um, I had back labor with my son, so his skull was going down my spine. So it, it was just excruciating and there was I couldn't do you know I wanted to it's like you're supposed to breathe you're supposed to do all these things and like I couldn't and I couldn't um couldn't embrace it and I feel like I really lost out in that regard um my body couldn't relax and you can't you can't think you're not saying that to yourself now are you no I don't I don't feel bad about it when I was Um, when I was having the stem cell transplant and that was that was the worst bit of the whole thing um, but um, like, so Julian went into an anchor hold into a small room attached to a church and stayed there for the rest of her life. This was, she was a hermit. Um, and you go into an isolation room to have this stem cell transplant because they take 
all your immunity away from you so that even the bacteria in your own body are poisonous to you. And it destroys all the bacteria in your gut. So you feel absolutely dreadful, not as dreadful as what you're describing and actually not as dreadful as what you're going through, Jeff, if I may say. It's just a lot of, a lot of diarrhea and vomiting and a horrible taste in your mouth. And, and I, I remember lying there and it's so just so uncomfortable and so weak and so helpless and and thinking of Julian, who in her most weakest moment brought to mind her love of Christ. And I remember thinking, Julian, how come you managed to do that? I can't do that. All I can do is remember that that's what you did. And it makes me cross. <laughs> I can't I can't make this something. So, so I didn't. You know, being transformed is is something that is almost done against your will, I'd say. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. like, no, our, our enlightenment mindset thinks we've got to be in charge of all of this and we're just not. And if you're anything like me, and I think, you know, most of us are actually, we, we do want to be in control, even of our spirituality, even of our accepting of Christ. Well, at some point or other, it becomes completely overwhelming and something is stronger than you are and that's a really really good lesson mm-hmm. for any human being to mm-hmm. yeah i've talked before about i'm not necessarily afraid of death i'm not necessarily afraid of pain but i'm afraid of that what that pain could do to me and um in terms of making me treat other people poorly yes. and um And I felt like that was my experience with my son. Now, I also had a daughter later and she said she came so quickly and she had no back labor that, you know, I had this experience of screaming to the point where I've never I've never made that noise before in my life. Like I'm a very quiet person. But after the fact, you know, it broke my body. And yet after the fact, like I am so proud of that scream of that noise that I made. I'm it's- you should be proud. <laughs> <laughs> I think childbirth teaches us the cost of love in a very visceral way, bloody way. I think it's probably, can I say this, the closest to the, the experience of the, of the crucifixion? Maybe. 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 And, and I, I, do, I do feel like a lot of people make that connection of like, this is, this is Christ's body broken for you. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think I've heard a lot of people in my community um, because we've we have a lot of young people a lot of young mothers and and when they go into that just saying like you are going to be broken in order to create life and it's horrible and it's hard and it's that is not an easy or comfortable thing but it is a beautiful and worthwhile thing um and i've talked to people about even body image um mothers after the fact um you know they don't always get their figure back or whatever but just talking about your body has become what it is because of how you've spent your life in in a beautiful way you have you've given some of that up you've changed maybe against your will but it is a beauty So you have a doctorate specifically on ecological consciousness and Julian of Norwich. Yeah. And I guess, 
so I just encountered her in the past year or two. So I'm curious where you encountered her in the first place and then how she connects to ecological consciousness. Yes, good questions because it's not obvious. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so I, I, I came across her, I did a theology degree at Oxford University, which was very, very dry indeed. Um, <laughs> however, I had one term on the medieval mystics, they were called, of which Julian was one. And that's where I met her and that's where I fell in love with her. Mm -hmm. And then I, I mean, I, I picked her up from time to time in the, in the following years, but it was only when the chance to study for a doctorate came, which is quite recently in the last 10 years, um, someone who was advising me on it said, well, you need to decide whether it's an idea you're going to be exploring or a text. And I knew I wanted a text um, because I find it grounding to have a text that you can really study and interrogate and that you keep coming back to it. Whereas an idea, in my case, anyway, you could go in a million different directions and go a bit mad. But I also knew that um, I wanted it to be about environment. And I knew, and I knew in the talking to him, or it came to me in the talking to him, that the text would be the revelations of divine love, Julian Norwich's. So here I had these two things, the revelations of divine love and ecological, the ne ecological need, the need to transform our way of seeing the world in order to live with the planet without harming it. That was the, that was the question. And I couldn't at first see where they were connected but I had this wonderful supervisor who introduced me to the idea of porosity, or rather the idea emerged in our conversations together. And what I found, and, and I, I sort of, I came to Julian and said, okay, is this in you? And, it, and I, it just kept on delivering, if you like, the text kept on saying yes. And what, but what it specifically did is it, so she's not a, scholastic theologian she's not constructing arguments or a scaffolding around god that we can climb up and in inspect god for her this is what she is going through and and her text and she says in the text this as, as well as actually doing it is intended for us not to look at her not to look at what she's got she went through but through her or through her text to encounter god directly so the, the text is poetic it's not it's not an argument that you can agree or disagree with. It's a poetic text that has an effect on you. And the effect it has on you, I argue, is it makes you porous. It makes you open to what you're encountering. And what I say is it's that porosity that we, what need we bring to our encounter with the other, the, the, the world around us, that doesn't put it, objectify it, put it somewhere else. It puts it beside us. So we're not, there's no them and us, it's all us. And we are to serve, not to dominate, but to serve mm -hmm. nature. So it's, it's um, eco so I talk about her bringing a mindset, a, a, a way of looking at the world through the nature of her writings as much as the content. But there are some beautiful things in it as well, like mm. as she sees the whole world as the size of a hazelnut in the palm of her hand. And it's so fragile and it's so delicate and she could close her palm and crush it. It's so small and it is held by God's love. It's mm. a fragile universe. And it's, <laughs> it's a really powerful image. Mm. It's, wow. So you will uh, share her voice with us through that book. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm looking forward to that. 
So you have founded charities and institutes like across the country, and you started programs about moral strength and courage in people. And I was actually really curious, like when I found that out, it made perfect sense with what I knew of your experience with cancer. But I'm curious whether you feel like the work you've done up to this point helped prepare you for the journey that you're on. Yes, it, uh, I tell you what it what it was like was it was like having my bluff called. Mm. So all this time I've been starting these programs and encouraging moral resilience and 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 spiritual waking up inside for strength to increase public service to have the courage to do the right thing and all this work I've been doing with others and now I was being asked myself. Mm. So now you are being put to the test. Because we only really know when we're put to the test what we're made of. Like your point about what will I be like if I'm in terrible pain? I'll treat people dreadfully. <laughs> what what will what will that be? What will that be? And it, and it was um, in some ways it was really exhilarating. Almost the thought at last, at last, I am being tested. This is real. Mm-hmm. A cancer diagnosis is real. It's your death. Mm-hmm. You're facing your mortality. How are you going to respond? And, um, and and I had to see whether I had it in me. And and yes, to some extent, the things that I'd spoken about with others played their part. But it's a bit like the, the thinking and the feeling, you know, because this had to be truly, truly from me. So I, I, actually, I what I would say is that the cancer experience and all the learning that's happened through that and transformation is now translating itself into the work I do with public servants. And, and it's, and it's become much more real, um, much more honest. Uh, I, I, I speak more, um, more uh, uh, readily about my own vulnerabilities and then people then are, it gives people permission to speak about their vulnerabilities back. And I think that makes better leaders. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. No, I feel I'm actually really curious culturally in that regard. My husband and I, we interact with a lot of church leaders and the person that he hung out with yesterday, actually. So he was supposed to go on sabbatical for the next couple months. He just finished his position at a church and wants to start something new. And he was supposed to go on a sabbatical starting in March. And then his wife had a stroke. And one of the takeaways that my husband had was just that it felt like I needed to give him permission to be upset um, or, or to admit like, no, this is hard. You don't have, you didn't, he didn't have to Christianize things. He didn't have to put it, make everything nice and clean and easy. Like you can say, this is horrible. And yeah. um, so, so I guess my question is, now that you feel like you've become more outspoken, more open with your emotions and your feelings and what you've gone through, does that take people off off guard? Does it feel like, does it seem like a relief to them or weird to them? <laughs> uh, I'd say, generally speaking, there's a bit of a shock. And then it's, oh, thank God I can be myself, is the mm. next thing. And quite, and quite quickly. So, um, I, I, I find that my encounters are richer and better. And most people are, are really ready. 
uh, ready for it. And it may be our time. So could, could we say that because of the pandemic, we've all been really brought face to face with a sense of mortality, with a sense that we're not in control of everything. Thing, and, and heavens, climate change and the things that are coming upon us, the wars that are coming, it is getting very difficult and challenging everywhere. And, uh, and, and, and so with, there's a greater humility, that's a greater softness, a greater porosity. I like that word a lot, porosity. Um, to each other so so the response is pr is is pretty good actually but yeah a little bit shocking to to begin with but it's it's like you're you're taking your shoes off thinking we now come on let's just be real with each other why waste time human encounter is so precious it's so it can be so transformative let's just get straight to the to the important things and 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 the cancer is is a very helpful mm. ticket to that or, or, right. or way to that there was something else i wanted to say that you made me think of the permission to oh yes christianizing things mm -hmm. so look isn't it the worst worst thing if you're if you're if if your christianity says because i'm a christian i, sh I shouldn't really suffer anything Pe people often think that of you they think and and i get asked this question quite a lot or oh, your your faith must be really comforting mm. and and somehow you've got something that they haven't got that's going to make it all right and mm -hmm. and that's not what it's like. In, in fact, it's almost the more the other way. And, and I think that's that's what Christ shows us. That's what God shows us through Christ is absolutely, absolutely there's suffering and pain. And, mm -hmm. and, and pretending things are otherwise is is just not true. Mm -hmm. And so that notion of, I don't know, if you're if you're a good faithful Christian, you won't get ill and you'll get rich and you know everything will be all right and your children will be all right is just I would use a really strong swear word. <laughs> oh, right. I don't, you know, that is a theological thread that has strength in the States, uh, health and wealth or whatever you might want to call that. If, if you're doing it right, if you're a good person, you're going to be blessed. And, and think how awful. So for the person who, for whom things right. go wrong, for whatever reason, not only has everything gone wrong in their lives, but also it proves they're not a good Christian, yeah. Yeah. how can that be right? That the one moment when you absolutely need Jesus, yeah, or when you've clearly disowned him because <laughs> you wouldn't be, this wouldn't be happening. It's right. terrible. Uh, so, uh, how are you doing, Claire? So you're done with uh, well, the cycle yes. of treatments or you're done with treatment at this point and just a wait and see kind of? Yeah. So uh, something I never thought would happen because it just went on and on and on and on and on was mm. the treatment did eventually come to an end last July. Mm. Just as somebody said to me only on, golly, yesterday, how are you? How are you emotionally? Because so, I feel, I should say, I feel like a new woman mm. at the moment. And every three months they test me. Just sorry to answer your question, Jeff. Every three months they test me to see what's happening. And so far it's stayed asleep, as a child put it. Your cancer is asleep. That's the better word for it because it doesn't go away. It just sits. Right. They can see it, but it's not enough to be active. So that's what they just keep watching. And once it starts to get active, then they might start treating me again, which I dread. But this is the uncertainty I have to live with. And I can't. 
wish it otherwise because it's just a fact. I'm living right. with uncertainty. Um, but this, so this lady said to me yesterday, um, ha, ha, you look great, she said, uh, but ha, have you, how are you emotionally? Have you, are you recovering emotionally from your treatment? And that really gave me pause for thought because nobody had really asked me that question. Mm. Are you recovering emotionally? Because two and a half years of grueling treatment is a long time. Mm -hmm. And again, one has to attend to that as you would to a physical need. We, we're much better at, at thinking about mental health now. We still don't quite know what to do about it, but at least we're attending to it. And this was in that area, really. So I think I'm probably, I, I'm just aware my energy is a bit brittle. And, and I do have a feeling that I, I'm still around for a reason. And I don't know what mm. that reason is. So every now and then I kind of open my arms and say, okay, tell me, you know, tell me, I'm ready, <laughs> tell me. But I also think I have to be patient and because I'm, you know, it's it's a heck of a thing, all of this illness and right. recovery. That was a beautiful description. I was going to ask you at the end, you know, uh, where have you found the most transformation? I think you just answered that question right there. Um. No, well, there is something else I would say, which is to do with the book that um, so the book came about, not because I was intending to publish anything, but just because for me, writing is the greatest solace. And so when I got the diagnosis, or as e sorry, even when I got the possibility of the diagnosis before it had been confirmed, I, I asked a group of friends and family if they would let me write to them regularly. And uh because I said, if I, if I'm, and I, won't, I don't want to edit what I'm writing. I don't want to make it easy for you. I want to be able to write what's going on to people who love and understand me. And I had this very funny exchange with somebody called Jonathan, who I asked him if he would be a dear reader. They all became dear readers, this group. I asked him if he would, and he said, oh, yes, I'll, I'll do that, Claire. I'd be, I'd be honoured. And, you know, he responded very, very nicely. But he also said... Um, that a friend, a friend of theirs, he and his, his wife, had gone to prison. I, I don't know why. And he'd said to them, could I write to you from prison? And Jonathan said, and we said, yes, of course, of course you can. Of course, if that would help, you can do that. And he said, he said after a few weeks, it got really boring. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the best things, because as I was writing week by week by week about what was going on, to me what was happening to me I thought I mustn't bore Jonathan uh. I, looked, I looked for quirky things for jokes I was I was really strong in describing things and visceral and you know thinking I'm not going to bore Jonathan I'm not going to bore Jonathan <laughs> so and the thing about all of that this is the transformative point the thing about all of that is I feel that I found my voice Mm. I've written books, we've published quite a lot of books before, but mm -hmm. this is, is my voice. Look, one's always discovering, one's always learning more, but it's the truest I've ever been. And now I'm writing a book about Julian of Norwich, in fact, in the same oh. voice. It's in the first person, which nice. is quite audacious. Oh, we don't really wow. know much about her, so it's an act of imagination, but she's let me do it, if I can put it yep. like that. Um, I will look forward to reading that. So, so yeah, miles to go before I sleep is hmm. is a completely honest book. 
Well, Claire, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so well, thank much. thank you. It was a delight to talk to you. Yeah. Absolutely. My, my pleasure and privilege. Really, really fantastic. Proper conversation. There's nothing You've like brought it. great joy to our hearts. Thank you very much. Likewise. Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. If you'd like to read Claire's book of letters for yourself... You can purchase it on Amazon through the link in this episode's notes. And if you'd like to donate to help make this podcast possible, click the subscribe and donate button at a different kind of walk.com. Until next time, live well. <laughs>